0: We're eventually going to look at Luke chapter 10. Did you want to read your verse, version? No. So you could turn there if you want. We'll get there in a little while. We're talking about the Jesus mission because we are family on mission. If you have the notes there, you see the outline. Roman numeral one, family on mission. So that's where we're beginning with this concept, and we'll look at the text once we get to Roman numeral chapter 2. Everybody got the notes? Who needs them or wants them? Lord Jesus, we love you with all of our hearts. We confess that you are King of the Jews and Lord of all nations, alive from the dead. We are grateful for this privilege, for this honor to meet together under your dominion, And in your spirit, flourishing in love and joy and worship and that sense of your presence. We're thankful for this gift. We're thankful for one another and the love of the spirit that flows between us. We're grateful. We humble our hearts before you in prayer yet again to say thank you. Thank you for it all. Lord, I just sense your presence as I'm praying. I'm grateful for that. And we want to pray for more. We pray for more of that connection to your glory as your very abiding presence. We pray for more of your anointing as that empowering presence to unveil you more and more to one another and to our world. We pray for an increase in your presence in every dimension so that you might be glorified, so that the Father's name might be sanctified, so that your kingdom might come, so that your will might be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Praise God. We ask you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation during this time of teaching that this entire message would come from you and be articulated through you and returned to you in the accomplishment of your purposes so that you might receive the glory, so that you might edify, inform, build up and release wisdom inside of people to be conformed collectively to your image. Lord, we got a long way to go. But you are our guide. You are our encouragement. You are our sails. You are the wind in our sails. You're the ship. (laughs) You're the water. You're our everything. And so we pray, bring us along to maturity in every way. And we pray that you will make waves in our lives and in our community, and that you will do a new thing, and that we would perceive it. We pray that we would feel it, and we would sense it. We pray that the The communication of the saints among one another would be anointed with the spirit of prophecy and the wisdom uh, and the revelation of the spirit so that there might be great confirmation, Lord, coming forth as to what you're doing and how you're doing it so that we could say yes to your word. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Won't you perceive it? Lord, may we be right in on that. Take us behind the curtain as we are behind the curtain to hear your secrets. Because we love you and we want your will to be done in us and through us for your glory. Jesus is King and Lord alive from the dead. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Roman numeral number one. Family on mission. That's our motto. All right? Or is that our vision? It doesn't matter. No, our motto is discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. Our vision is family on mission. And our mission is our vision. (laughs) To make disciples and plant churches. Did I get that right? Anyway, you know what? Family on mission is an important phrase to us. And even on the mission part, in, in letter A there, family is the foundation and context and goal of this Jesus mission. Family is the foundation because all ministry to the community around us should come out of a family context. Whether it's missionaries sent to a totally different place, they should have come out of a community of faith. Not just attending something or going to a church by name, but actually part of a family that's the healthiest and most biblical way. But any kind of ministry should emerge out of a family situation and therefore it's also the context whether something new is being planted that should ultimately be a family or if we're nurturing disciples that should happen in the context of family just like on the natural level children are born in family and they're nurtured and ultimately educated in a family context and then of course family is the goal because we are seeking to plant new churches no matter what else God is doing. It's happening in and through the church. And that the church as family. The son himself. So number one under letter A. This concept is rooted in the Trinity. The son of God himself was sent from the father. And the father and the son are eternally connected to one another in love by the spirit. So the son himself comes out of a family context in his earthly mission. And he testified to that urgently, in particular in John's Gospel. It's like, I'm doing this so you'll know the Father sent me. You you must know this. Father, I pray this publicly. You hear me in private all the time, but I pray this publicly so that they will know that you sent me. And he's talked about the father testifying to him. He was very, very family-oriented, and he would not accomplish his mission as an isolated figure. That's anathema to him. It had to be something the father had sent him to do and is working in and through him as he testified. So, needless to say, we should follow a similar pattern. Or maybe the same pattern. That all ministry emerges out of family in the spirit. Number two, underneath that, the saints, therefore, we are prepared for mission, likewise in the context of family. From itinerant ministries, like I already said, itinerant ministries, whether it's apostles being sent out to plan something or it's any traveling ministry, the, the basis point should be a family context, not just attending a church, and certainly not just going to a church where you're the leader and the preacher or there's no other function but uh, all leaders who who travel even should be immersed in a community and should have a family with whom they break bread and pray and prophesy and they lay hands on one another and they fellowship and then they could send them out when they go but you know that's one of the more extreme Uh, versions of this, all of us in any of our outreach, whatever it is, we should be rooted, of course, within the family context because we are prepared for mission in the context of family. In Ephesians 4, when it talks about the five ministries, uh, preparing the saints, it says equipping the saints for the work of ministry, right? As I've, as I've explained before, That word for equip actually means to make whole. It means to make ready or to prepare. It can certainly mean to equip. But as I understand the word, it really means to repair and make whole. It's often used as a medical term or a term meaning to build something or to fix something that's broken. The five ministries help people become whole people so that they can be a body, and it's in that mode that they do the work of the ministry. So family is the context that helps makes us whole for ministry, so that what we're replicating when we're sharing our gospel and the life that we have... With the, with the world around us, we're replicating something that's whole. It may not be absolutely perfect. Of course, we're always growing. But there's a wholeness there that is magnified exponentially by the family context. All right? Letter B. Church planting is the ultimate goal of family on mission. To make disciples in the context of church, but also making new churches. That doesn't mean it's the only form of ministry, but it's the ultimate goal, and then it's the context for any other kind of ministry. No matter what we might be called to in a city, whether it's clothing the poor, or it's even having an orphanage or something, still, the the, the planting of church is still God's ultimate goal, creating the context, foundation, and goal. The, uh, The local church is not only God's house where He lives, as Mike was exhorting us and prophesying, it's also the house from which every other ministry to the city should be coming. Everything should be family business. Letter C, the church is a spiritual family that actually can be a witness to outsiders even in its normal functioning without trying to. And I get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 20 through 25. That's an example where Visitors are coming Unbelievers are actually coming to a church meeting And Paul tells them Make sure you're prophesying And not just speaking in tongues without interpretation And that will be a great witness to the people that are visiting So my point is That even a church just functioning as a family And prophesying to one another That can actually be a vehicle Just in itself as people visit the meeting Now a house church meeting Is not mainly supposed to be a missionary outreach uh, it's, it's a family edification setting for the sake of being a light to the world. But that doesn't mean it can't be a witness to a visiting unbeliever. Or, as Paul says in that passage, a novice. So someone new to the things of the Spirit. Or maybe just a brand new disciple or not quite born again. Or the other word he uses is an unbeliever. Someone who's not born again. Paul envisions situations where folks like that come to a an established house church and he exhorts them you got to be prophesying you can't just be spouting off in tongues without interpretation because guess what no one knows what you're saying unless you interpret then it's fine but if you're prophesying not only are you edifying the believers but you're giving witness to unbelievers because you will expose them prophetically and they will fall down and make one of those what Paul quotes from the days of Elijah you know 1 Kings 18 I think it is They'll fall down in response to your prophesying and and testify that God is surely among you. Like when the fire fell. Yahweh, he is God. So the New Testament version of that is the church prophesying as witness to outsiders coming in our meetings. That may not be our main vehicle for mission, uh, but it is a vehicle. So the church has the power for witness just in its prophetic life. That's prophetic life. Not pathetic life. Come on. (laughs) Letter D, mission creates and replicates a family culture. That's the importance of starting with family because we want to replicate a way of life in others that's not just getting saved and then attending, but rather being integrated in the entirety of the new creation, which includes the new family. So we want to model this so that we replicate it by default. We don't want to build mechanisms that are different than family. We want people to get saved in this environment or through people who are immersed in this environment so it's somewhat natural. Again, it's just like natural family. We don't dole that out to others uh, to raise our children. We may delegate certain things like schooling and whatever. We have the authority to delegate, but still it's the power of the family that creates human beings. And so that's way not different for a spiritual family. It's the same. So there you have family on mission, Roman numeral 1. Now we go to Roman numeral 2. Don't you like these references to my Roman numerals? Isn't that exciting? This is the Jesus mission. I want to talk about the Jesus way of doing mission which is usually different than our natural kind of inclination. I'm using natural there in a a little bit more of a negative way than I did in my previous point. Um, The Jesus mission is driven by a kind of wisdom that we don't always recognize or embrace when we're doing missions work or especially in the Western world when we're trying to lead people to get saved. And so I want to look at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 10. Where Jesus reveals His wisdom for mission. Now, there's a couple of qualifiers here before I begin, and before I read this passage, uh, before I begin this point is what I mean. I've already begun my message, as you may have noticed. But um, there's some particular things about this. You know, they're in Israel, and they're going specifically to cities in Israel. That doesn't apply to every single person who reads this from now on. These are also apostles he's sending out, and not everyone is an apostle who's supposed to go into a new town or a new village and start something. That doesn't mean others can't do something like this. It just means that it doesn't necessarily apply absolutely to every single uh, disciple. However, there's wisdom embedded in this mission that's meant to be replicated from this point on forever. And you'll see why as I teach. And expand on these points, okay? So the wisdom there is what we want, and some of the exact pattern is going to apply to us. So you may not be an apostle who sent raw into, you know, or sent two by two raw into a new neighborhood and a new town, and you're just gonna plan a new work there and move on. But even if we're planted in a, a certain city or a certain part of the city, we have to keep this wisdom in mind. The Lord is more geographic than we have become in our modern and technologically advanced culture. Just like you can't do natural family digitally, you can't do spiritual family digitally. These things may help us, but you can't do it that way. The old, the original, the ancient ways of doing mission are the same then and they are the same today. And so that's where we're going with this. Recognizing not every point applies, but the wisdom behind it does. Now I'm going to back up just a little bit, just to show you something here that's interesting and ultimately important for us. At this point, when we begin Luke 10, there was already a tremendous turning point. That's the name of these meetings. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to thank everyone that's helped me to this point, to make that point, turning point, point. All right, okay. Moving on. Um, in in verse fifty-one of chapter nine, this is the turning point of Luke's gospel, going all the way through Acts. Luke nine fifty-one. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he set his face, or literally, he established his face toward Jerusalem. So he is now focused on that city where he will make his ascension. Meaning, that's where he's going to fulfill his mission and die for our sins. Arise from the dead and ascend to his throne. So Luke puts it all together. It all happens in Jerusalem. It's got to happen in Jerusalem. And from this point on, the rest of Luke's gospel is a journey to Jerusalem. So everything that happens from this point on, Luke is conscious and wants to make us conscious that all this is happening in a journey toward Jerusalem. Now that was physically happening in Jesus' day. It was historically accurate for him. It was literally on his way to Jerusalem. All this other stuff happened. But I believe there's still a message for us today that we, I'm talking all New Covenant people, all right, we're all on a pilgrimage spiritually t- toward Jerusalem, meaning, okay, even if we're not called to move, we're obviously called to our localities, um, the redemption of that city is important to us, because we know God's choice of that city, we know God's choice of that nation, we know God's choice of that people. And we know from Scripture that until the, the people, particularly the leaders of that city, According to Jesus, during his proclamation in Matthew 23, until they turn to the Lord, the world will not see Jesus again. So it should be important to us that Jerusalem cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we're journeying toward Jerusalem too. Our mission here is connected to that greater mission there. Because another thing to say about this is Jerusalem is a literal city. Luke emphasizes this throughout his gospel in Acts Geography is important Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem That was a geographical reality that was just as spiritual as everything else happened Then in Acts, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And then even to the uttermost parts of the earth And so it's very important at the end of Acts, we know Paul is in Rome, the ends of the earth. The geography of this is very important, which is part of the wisdom that we need. Because we're so emphatic about the spiritual aspects of the gospel, rightly so, you know, that a human soul believes And receives the cleansing power of the blood. And receives the Holy Spirit. Amen. But we've taken that and so spiritualized mission. That the geographical aspects of mission don't matter to us. But they do matter to God. Very much. And part of the journey toward Jerusalem. Making Jerusalem a literal earthly city. As our spiritual target. Throws light Back on our present mission in our city. Because if God is concerned about a city of people in the Middle East and one day redemptively that it get revived, and by the way, what happens at the end of the age? A new Jerusalem comes down from heaven from God, right? To the earth, right? If, if God is that city oriented in the age to come, He's city oriented now. So Jerusalem vindicates our effort to reach our city God's way. There are no denominational or franchise church names in Scripture. That is a completely foreign wisdom. Yeah, but we've got so many churches. Sorry, it's just not biblical. Let's face it and, and, and just be honest or not. But don't try to talk me out of this. Is, is, the, is the word of God authoritative or Not. To the Church of God in Corinth. To the, to the saints who are in Rome. To the Church of God in Thessalonica. Or the modern pronunciation. Thessaloniki. Or Ephesus. Or the region of Galatia. Ah, there's cities there. Or the cities in Revelation. There were seven letters to seven churches. Guess why he wrote letters to those churches? Because the churches were, were identified with God and their city. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Philadelphia, etc., etc. You get the idea. Right? So the journey toward Jerusalem vindicates the city identity of the church. Rightio. Alright, so look at verse... We looked at verse 51. Look at 957. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then the following teaching and challenges happen on the journey. You look down in chapter 10, which is our passage, look further... All the way down to the Mary-Martha story in verse 38. As they were traveling along, he entered a village. And so again, the journey is emphasized by Luke. And then he enters a village, which he doesn't name here, but it's still important. He's in a place where people are naturally communing and joining their resources. And there was a key family there. And so he goes in the house and begins to teach, which is part of his mission. So that household ministry, which was within a village, was all on the way to the one city, Jerusalem. Very important for Luke. A few chapters over, you don't have to turn there. In chapter 14, when he gives that great sermon, you know, the spontaneous sermon on whoever will come after me. He's got to hate his father, mother, brother, sister, wife, even his own life. And unless you do, you're not worthy to follow me. Pretty... Severe words coming from the Lord. It says he was going along the way. He's on this journey to Jerusalem, which for Luke is like code. You know he's going to die there. That's what the mission is about. That's where he's going. He's not just floating around doing neat Jesus things. He's going to that city to die and rise and become king. Ultimately, right? So that's that's what colors in his ministry. So when it says he's going along, that's the spirit of it. But there's crowds with him, it says. So then it says as they're going along and the crowds were with him, he turns and he says, if you come after me and don't cut off every other loyalty, you can't come with me. See how that is going? It's like, you don't understand where I'm going. But if you understood where I was going, you made you might understand the covenant required to join you. So, yeah, it's all about the journey. Because the journey, the goal of the journey, defines the nature of the mission. So here we go. Let's read now a chunk of chapter 10. And at the end of this passage, we might read it. I'm not sure, but you quoted that tonight, Mike, out of Matthew. Matthew's version of these words. So that was cool. That got my attention. Verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and every place where he himself was about to come. So again, you see how Jesus is oriented towards some geography. As much as he's going after the human heart, there's certain places he's going to get to those hearts. And now part of his strategy is to to send pairs of two ahead of him. Anyway, and this is what he was saying to them in verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech or ask urgently that the Lord of the harvest would send out or compel laborers into his harvest. Go. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and don't greet anyone on the way. Part of the reason for that is to focus on the geography where they're going. Right? The 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 travelers, they're going to stop and chat. No, you can't do that. Get to the place and put a stake down there. Whatever house you enter, this is still meant to... We're meant to smell... The outdoors and the earthiness of this. You're going to certain places. You're going to certain houses. Be house oriented. Be city oriented. Whatever house you enter. First say shalom to this house. If a son of shalom is there. Your shalom will rest on him. But if not it will return to you. Stay in that House. So again, even if we're not traveling missionaries going exactly according to these instructions, we should really be sensitive to what he's saying, even for our own local church life. He's saying, find the house you're supposed to stay in and stay in it. Okay, this is like the opposite rhythm of convening a giant assembly and just preaching To everyone at once. I'm not saying that's wrong. I think that's right. And I think it's a good thing. But it's not the core of mission. Because you don't move as quickly or as powerfully unless this wisdom is the foundation. So I'm not negating the other form. Hardly. No, that's fine, but it's not the thing. It's like everything we want to do, it's like all we want to reach the city. Well, what do we do? We have a big event. Well, that's fine to do when the Lord leads to do it, but it should be built upon this wisdom that says, find the right person, and they're the key to everything. The right person in the right house, in the locations where I send you. Mm -hmm. Stay, verse 7 again, stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you because the laborer is worthy of his wages, don't keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever you city, excuse me, whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of the city which clings to your, to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. So again, the, the reference to the dust, there's just something earthy and local that Jesus is emphasizing here. But be sure of this, the warning continues, the kingdom of God had come near to you. So yeah, sometimes even God's most poignant expressions of himself are not received. Just that happens. So Jesus says, "I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city." So again, that's the way he's thinking. And now here's some woes against some cities. Woe to you, Koritzin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted in heaven or to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Speaking again to a city. Capernaum, uh, the village of Nahum. All of those cities or towns, Korazin or Korazin, however the modern way to say that is, Bethsaida, Capernaum, to this day, you guys who go to Israel or Ben, you'll visit their ruins. They don't exist as cities anymore. Not after these woes. There'll always be tourist attractions, I guess, until God redeems the land. But it's cool to go see the, the old forms of the ancient ha- homes. Uh, in any case, the woes persist these cities had rejected the Lord when worse cities than they would have repented if they saw the same miracles. Verse 16, Jesus tells his sent ones the one who listens to you listens to me the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 70 returned with joy and they were saying, Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name and Jesus responds I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Which, by the way, I see that now. Yes, there's a general picture there, but that's already started with the disciples' ministry, the fall of Satan. The decisive defeat is at the cross and resurrection. But these disciples were participating in the enemy's um, in bringing down the enemy's authority over these cities. That's what Jesus was witnessing. Which is why it's important that we understand the Jesus mission. Because it's not just the Jesus way, which is pretty much the most important reason. But it's because of the spiritual warfare strategy that's behind it. We'll get to that. He said, they come back, they're like, the demons, we say your name, they leave people. And Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Boom! Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven or recorded in heaven. And then he says, at that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, saying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and the intelligent and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father. For thus it was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says, by my Father. And no one knows who the who the who the Son is. What is the first one? Who who the um. No one knows who the Son is, except the Father. No one knows who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, um, "Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see." For I tell you, many prophets and kings have longed to see what you see, and they did not, and to hear the things that you hear, and they did not. Lord, take away the wax film over those words, because we don't feel the privilege of those words, because we don't really see what we're seeing, and we don't really hear what we're hearing. Heighten the vision of Jesus in us and around us so that we can see the magnitude of this simple ministry to these villages and in our own. Lord, do something in us. Make waves because we like the way that sounds, but it's hard to do. Give us grace. Jesus is king. Amen. Okay. Now, the Jesus wisdom, letter A. Jesus oriented his mission in terms of geography and in particular city. You got that there, you filling in your blanks. Even the word oriented, which is my choice for your notes, it means to, you know, calibrate in a direction. It comes from a word that is a literal location, the east or the orient. Jesus oriented his mission in terms of geography and cities. When God called our family here, and probably most of us are transplants, when God called our family here, God called our family here. It wasn't just a move for us and then we're going to do stuff here that we could do anywhere. Even though my, my personal work is like that, my job, I could do that anywhere, as long as I have a computer. But I can't do what God called me to do here anywhere. And neither can you. So if God's transplanted us here, then we have to see ourselves somehow as sent. Did you hear that alliteration? We have to see ourselves as somehow sent here and really embrace that. So that's the purpose God sent us here. It was it was for here. Anyway, Jesus oriented his mission in terms of geography and in particular cities. And cities is like the, the middle because he recognizes much larger terrain, nations and regions... And he also recognizes smaller segments because our city is quite big. It's a large city. You know, it's not like the largest city, but compared to the cities Jesus sent his disciples to, it's a very big city, Charlotte, let alone comparing it to something like whatever, Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. So therefore, that, that terrain has to be broken up into sections. In any case, we might recognize kind of a village or a neighborhood within it, But you get the idea. The city is kind of in between the smaller um, segments and the larger segments. Number one sub-point, right? Remember the context is Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem, as we've already said. He's going toward a city, so in the meantime, he's concerned about cities. Number two, Jerusalem is the focal point. So a very brief detour here. I've already alluded to it. I'm just going to touch on it now. Jerusalem is the focal point for Jesus' journey. In one sense, it's the focal point for us also. Not because we're necessarily called to do more in Jerusalem than here, but for the purposes I already mentioned, we belong to a larger plan, and our mission in this city belongs to a larger mission to that city. And the success of the kingdom in that city, according to Jesus in Luke and Paul, depends on the fullness of the Gentiles which includes successful kingdom ministry in Gentile cities around the world in order to impact that city. Are you with me? We got to think in terms of Jerusalem to remind us to think in terms of our city. So our city broken down into neighborhoods, which is broken down by into homes and broken down into families, one of whom in a section is usually the key family. That person, or let's make it a single person, just to get it down as, as small as we can, to that one Samaritan woman, she has a key role in the redemption of Jerusalem. Because she was the doorway for Jesus into her city, which was a, a basically Gentile city. But that was part of His mission to the ultimate city. So the, the focus on Jerusalem brings significance To every aspect of God's plan and every person therein between here and Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. The Jerusalem target keeps us focused on our own local mission. In terms of cities, and therefore neighborhoods, and therefore families, and therefore by the grace of God, the key people to the rest. Letter B, Jesus called for a prayer movement to cause and undergird this apostolic mission. That's the first thing he said, even before he said go, he said pray. That's going to have very obvious and simple application for us during our assignment portion of the... Teaching, and you can imagine what it might be, pray. But that is the first thing Jesus said now. He does say, you know, appeal strongly to the Lord of the harvest to compel laborers. And then the next thing he says is, go. Which means he had been praying. (laughs) So he's got his laborers, but he's telling his laborers to pray for more laborers. So as we're praying for more laborers, we may hear the Lord's go ourselves. You know, of course, there's always going to be a certain go on us. And so we're going to hear it in some way. Others may hear it in a, in a louder, more magnified way. I don't know how that is, but the real point is that we really, to to be mission oriented, we don't want to cop out behind a prayer movement, but neither do we want to go without one. We, we have to, we have to spark a missional prayer movement in our midst. When I say prayer movement, I don't mean organizing places we go to pray. I just mean people who pray. Lord of the harvest, in agreement with the Lord and one another. So it's important we see that at this stage, how Jesus prioritizes that. And all of this was in the passage I read. Obviously, I'm going to refer to it, not read it again. Do you remember when he said that? Pray the Lord of the harvest. Okay, letter C. Are we in sync with the notes? By the way, for those of you who might be getting anxious, I will use this. I'm not going down that path where I don't do art for you. I don't know if I'll ever go down that path again. I might. I might. But but right now, I don't plan to. Let her see. Okay, so a little bit on the practical side here. Jesus worked with the existing structures of natural human organization on planet Earth the way humans naturally organize themselves, particularly in cities, Jesus worked with that. And I'll show you why in a moment, in a few moments. I'm going to get my blue pen out to get ready. Uh, This is important. Um, Now, one of the big questions that's going to come out of this is, well, what do we do now? Because we don't necessarily operate this way. And I'm not trying to get us to operate like these missionaries tomorrow. Even we in house churches still commute from different parts of town. And I don't see any other way to do that at this stage in the game for us. So carry right on with that and do it wonderfully and powerfully and lovingly and joyfully. That's what we're supposed to be doing at this point. But at some point, even if we maintain what we're doing here, we must become more geographically oriented. And for those who are called to just pierce through a certain neighborhood, a section, wherever it is, then you just start with the Jesus wisdom right off the bat. But for the way we're operating, because we're already so spread out and we're gathering people who are interested, not just people who are in our certain location, it's kind of necessary that during our growth process, we operate the way we are now. So don't automatically try to fit these things together perfectly now. We have time to grow into this. That's why I believe this is a turning point. We may not know how to change what our existing MO now, but we need to get like, focused on Jerusalem, so to speak, which will focus us on this wisdom. And maybe it'll bring about certain changes over the next months or year or two in our existing structures. Maybe not, but going forward, it's the Jesus way we signed up for So, this organization, the natural human organization, like we already said, families, in houses, in neighborhoods, or in towns or villages, which then constitute cities. And the cities are part of regions, and the regions are part of nations. This is more or less basically how the entire human race, in one form or another, organizes itself. And, of course, within that, within the smaller units, we look for the sons of peace or the daughters of peace by implication, the, the persons of peace. That's the, the language that Sh- Sean used when he was with us. Uh, number one sub-point, okay? This organization to which I'm referring reflects God's image. Now, we don't do it perfectly when we organize ourselves into cities and regions and nations, etc. It's been, it's been tainted by sin. It's been corrupted. So we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it... Um, well, and, and there's so much, you know, mixture and sin and everything else. But even if it's tainted by the fall and, and this organization is used corruptly, it's still the natural projection of God's image in us, which basically is community. We pool our resources, and there you have cities. That's what cities are for. And in the ancient world, particularly protection and provision. So you with your skills and me with my skills, we work together, we barter, we there's an economy. It's community. And, and it's, it's the image of God to work in community. So even naturally, when we don't like one another, we'll still congregate in cities to pool our resources and our humanity. So um, do you have letter A under number one? Yep. Okay. I didn't remember how far my sub points went. I, I want to give you a couple of quotes about the importance of the city in particular, knowing that there's smaller versions of cities called towns or villages or hamlets, or there's neighborhoods within cities. But speaking of the city and the general tendency toward that kind of community, I'm going to quote something from a preacher, uh, a well-known minister in New York named uh, Tim Keller. I found this quote in, in a document online, and I I liked it. I was looking for something like this uh, some months ago. Tim Keller says this, that God himself designed the city. Uh, He doesn't mean every human city. He means the concept of a city. That's God's design. That's not a human invention. And he designed the city with the power to draw out the resources of creation, both the natural order and the human soul, and thereby to build civilization. So, yeah, the city is important. Again, God designed the city with the power to draw out the resources of creation. When we pool our resources and make cities... It helps us tap into creation. This does not negate all the people that live in more rural areas, and they resource us in the cities often. We need them and they need us, but most of the time everything is somehow in reference to a city. He goes on to say a little bit more of an explanation regarding the fact that the city is God's invention. Even God's future redeemed world and the entire universe is depicted as a, quote, city. Now, I don't know if the entire universe is depicted as a city or Jerusalem is a city within the universe. Either way, we got the new Jerusalem at the end of the age. And that's absolutely true. So regarding that, he quotes Hebrews. Uh, Tim Keller says, Abraham sought the city whose architect and builder is God. So that even Abraham was city-oriented if he didn't realize it. There was a city that represented the age to come. And even if only instinctively, this is Bob speaking now, not Tim. I'm not putting words in Tim's mouth, okay? Instinctively, if if no other way, uh, Abraham understood he was looking for a city. And so that the cities built by the Canaanites where he was wandering were not his city. Cities. All right? Back to the quote. Revelation 21 describes and depicts the apex of God's redemption as a city. His redemption is building us a city, the New Jerusalem. In fact, when we look at the New Jerusalem, we discover something strange. In the midst of the city is a crystal river, and on each side of the river is the tree of life bearing fruit and leaves which heal the nations of all their wounds and the effects of the divine covenant curse. Mike Bickle would add that those leaves are for the healing of the nations because of the seven plagues poured out at the end of the tribulation which, of course, come after the seven trumpets and those plagues and the seven seals. So especially during the tribulation, the earth is so ravaged, it is, is brought into such destruction, is stripped down so bare and is so poisoned that um, we would need the healing of the city that comes down to restore uh, during the thousand-year period the earth as it is before it's completely renewed after the last rebellion at the end of the millennium. oh, a little uh, talk about the eschatology. It's a big picture. Okay, it's a big picture that kind of boils all the way down to Jesus meeting with that one Samaritan woman. But it's all connected. So he goes on to say that this city is, because of the reference to, to the river and to the tree and the leaves and the fruit, this city is the Garden of Eden remade, and I would add, put into the location now that is central to God. So this is a garden city. The city, he goes on to say, is the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. We began in a garden, but we'll end in a city. God's purpose for humanity is urban, so he says. I say they're combined. It's a it's a city garden, garden city. It's both integrated perfectly uh, nature and the city life are integrated uh, perfectly in God's design. So the city is God's invention, and it is God's design ultimately. It's not just a sociological phenomenon or an invention of humankind. That's our main point here. However corrupt our filter is, we're still instinctively doing something God planted on our souls. Something God Himself does. He builds cities. I would add, letter B. This, this, this the creation of cities, is one of the ways humans are meant to subdue the earth. This is how we take dominion over sharks. We make cities. Just, you tell me if you've seen any sharks in a city. You have not. I think there's, isn't there some movie where sharks come flying in the air? That is not real. We've taken dominion. You will not find a shark in the city. See, it works. Unless they're in the, I know, unless they're in an aquarium. But still, they can't go out. And we've captured them. We've captured them. Say we, like... You know, proud of us for doing that. (laughs) Letter C. This organization is recognized by and used by demonic powers. They recognize this form of organizing which includes government and they infiltrate the governments over these different areas and they seek to rule them. They seek to supplant God's government, which happened at the beginning. And so when we organize ourselves as humans out of compulsion of the image of God, the demons come right into those structures and rule them in the invisible realm. And that's why you have terminology of government and hierarchy in Ephesians 1. and uh, Excuse me. Well, Ephesians 1, yes. And Ephesians 6 and Colossians 1, which we'll look at in a moment. Uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 32... As well, well, in Deuteronomy 32, there's a reference to the nations being allotted according to the sons of Israel, but some of the manuscripts say the sons of Elohim, which is a rec- which is a recognition of the angelic beings that have dominion over certain defined territories on the earth. So you tell that to your British friends who say we're still in rebellion. Just kidding. Just joking over here. Just joking. Just joking. Just joking. I'm just messing with you. Because I hear Andrew joking with me as I'm saying this, so it's all in good fun. Uh, in any case, okay. So, um, they use these structures uh, structures for their own power over humanity. They have hijacked them. And then these structures ultimately belong to God. I want to show you in Colossians chapter 1, a verse about this. Uh, Colossians 1.16 For those of you listening to the recording, sorry about all this page turning right on the phone there. Colossians 1.16, very interesting here. Um, No, not 1.16, 2.16. No, no, I was right. I was in Ephesians. Uh, General Electric, Pepsi, Cola, so see... That comes after the P. It is one sixteen. I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. Please edit that out, Brian. <laughs> Colossians one sixteen. We are for real now. Colossians one sixteen. For by him all things were created. How many things? All things. That's right, donut man. He made all the animals. So this encompasses all of creation. He means all of nature. He means the, bird and the, f- the birds and the fish and the mountains and the stars in the sky. Yes, and all other angelic powers, everything. But watch the way he now focuses in. When, when he makes as a synonym to all things, he says both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created Through him and for him. So when he gets specific about what he means by all things, he refers exclusively to governmental structures in the spirit realm. Because he's saying he's the one that created human organization and the idea generally of government, which is supposed to come from his theocracy down with loyalists helping him steward creation. When we rebelled from that, those vacuums, if you would, of lordships and thrones were filled by demonic beings. So in Ephesians, it speaks of these same government structures as our enemies. Here, it doesn't say they're our enemies. It's implied that they've become that in other parts. But here it just says that's what God created. Because he's the one that created these organizations, uh, these general... The tendencies toward organization and structure that's now been hijacked by these demonic powers what does this have to do with mission well here we go um, do you have a letter D there therefore the Jesus way of mission is strategic it's strategic he did not create the way we generally go about things with our multi-church campuses in different places and You know, I don't mean that with a critical spirit. It's just not God's wisdom. That's that's like franchising food places. It's like it's the exact same thing no matter where you go. Right? When you go to Italy, come on. There's not a lot of franchises there in southern Italy. Because they cook their food their way, you know what I'm saying? From their location. That's why there's a lot of mozzarella, especially buffalo mozzarella. Because it comes from there and they're all... You know, champions of buffalo mozzarella, which I don't even like as much as the regular mozzarella, but that's okay. No offense. (laughs) But we've found, we've taken something natural and we franchise it. It doesn't matter where you are, you get whatever that franchise food is. It'll taste the same or almost the same wherever you get it. But that's not the way humans work. They work best in their environment. Rooted in their soil is just like the food. So this organization is strategic. Uh, Jesus' way of using the organization is strategic in terms of human life because it's the way we live, as well as in terms of spiritual warfare. Our okay. If the square merely represents a nation, this is like the largest. Uh, Form of division of human uh, uh, organization, right? My guess is, and we're not given like systematic theology books on this. We're not necessarily supposed to know how it all works out perfectly. But my guess is that list in Ephesians six: are, we don't battle against blood and flesh, but against the rulers. So that's plural. The Greek word is archon, a prince, a ruler. Arch, A-R-C-H, as in first or top, like archaeology. Anyway, I hope that's interesting to you. (laughs) Um, These Archon... um, The Satan is called an Archon, so he's one of these princes, even if he's the chief over them, which means there's apparently the highest-ranking officials are called these princes. And then the next one is authority, so... We battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So that's four tiers. There's other words we just read in Colossians 1, yet others in Ephesians 1. So I don't know exactly where to put them, but my guess is the archon rule the larger entities. They're not these, the smaller ones on the ground seeking to just latch on and make you believe stupid, confusing things. Those things we, you know, together we, we get out. But they belong to a higher network that goes all the way to ruling a nation. And they work through all their underlings. In, the underlings work within the grid that we're about to very simply put up here for you. So if an archon rules a nation, the nations are, are, are usually if not always, broken down into smaller segments, regions of some kind. Our nation is broken up into states. You know, something like uh, Canada is broken up into provinces. Brazil has regions. Thailand has regions. They don't use them politically anymore. They use them for statistics, so then now they've broken up into provinces. And then within the provinces, there's oftentimes um, further breakdown, like we have counties. Counties. And uh, Brazil has smaller regions, they, co- they used to call them meso-regions, now they're called something else. And of course, in these smaller regions, there are cities. And within the cities, there are families, etc., etc., etc. This represents, because it's been hijacked, this pattern represents a demonic hierarchy. Now this isn't meant to, like, frighten us. It's just life. It's the way it is. We have victory over these things. No matter what we do as the church, we believers have victory over the powers of the air. But Jesus is saying, if you want to bring my kingdom into a city, you have to follow the wisdom of the way things are organized. You can't just say, oh, I feel called to such and such a city. And then you buy a building and you try to gather people from wherever. It's like you, 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 you're you going to do some good things because wherever Christ is proclaimed, we rejoice. But you're not going to bring the kingdom strategically. You're going to bring it humanly, franchisely. If I could make an adverb out of it. There's going to be mixture. So Jesus says you find that one person... And you gotta find them, cause it's not easy. You know, the, the command in Matthew is like, you really gotta research this. And you may do a lot of preaching, a lot of work, and never find one in this village. But when you find them, and you can get the gospel here, if they can impact that city, you've now started a chain reaction that's meant, ultimately, to take dominion over an entire nation. Now what that looks like on the ground is massive revival and a lot of persecution. We don't take over politically. But spiritually, we do. It'll mean more bloodshed for our brothers and sisters and maybe some of us. The more successful we are in the spirit, I think there'll be more persecution. That's what Jesus promised us. I don't hold to a different eschatology. I think the crisis is still coming. Nonetheless, so is the greatest revival and harvest. And I believe when when we restore the kingdom way, because when we do it this way, we will bring God's dominion among structures that are demonic and still enjoying their government even if they're not enjoying ultimate success. They're still functioning in governmental positions. So the the two things that really bring the kingdom when we're making disciples, the two elements of the kingdom are number one, family. We're losing a spiritual battle if we're not, if we're not building family because demons have access to our fragmentation. Number one. And number two, the other thing is the Jesus strategy for our city that follows this general wisdom of starting with the one with strategic Holy Spirit direction And letting that then Proliferate in a chain reaction to the rest Those two elements The family and the Jesus strategy That's what establishes God's kingdom in a city Rather than just demonstration Come on now That was important Because no matter what the demonstration is We rejoice You could have 25 million Christians in a city And God doing all kinds Of awesome things Speaking to people and people getting saved and discipled and miracles. Whatever else God's doing. Good works occurring. Amen and hallelujah. But as far as really establishing the kingdom, it's the Jesus way or it doesn't get established. You'll have way more demonstration than you will have establishing the kingdom, which is God's eternal purpose. <sighs> okay? <Yeah>. Voila. <laughs> The grid tells it all, and you know this is not to scale. It's not to shape, <laughs> but you get the idea. And somewhere in yes, so yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. I just don't want anybody leaving with the wrong impression. <laughs> and I don't insult your intelligence. I know you won't have the impression that it doesn't really look like this. What I don't want you to have the impression of is that I think it looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> because my directional, I might as, anyway. So, yeah, we're looking for these keys. Doesn't mean we're all meant to find them. But these keys then just, it's just like a video game. <laughs> Thank you, Finn. <friends. laughs> okay, and then letter D. <laughs> You have a question? Okay, no problem. Are you saying that this was God's order things? This is God's mind. Yeah, this is God's order. The mm-hmm. rulers, authority, power, forces have hijacked that. Yes. So they're now ruling in these ways. <coughs> but it was originally God's design. Of yes. Life. And then now, in order to bring the kingdom, we have to like go. To the one person, and then that goes back. Right. We did this. We've already done it naturally. Yeah. We've subdued the earth in terms of nature. (laughs) And we've done it by getting married and having kids and then building these larger communities that expand. We've done it. Now we do it again spiritually. You see how everything for me, it's like a broken record. It goes back to the natural family as a paradigm for the spiritual family. Always. Because it's God's Word. It's who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now we do the same thing missionally. So if God has sent us here, it's time to start praying about this. We may not conform to this perfectly over the next year, but we should start praying about it. All right? So letter D, then, regarding that passage, the last thing I want to say, and and important to serve this mission here, represented by the drawing. Letter D, Jesus seeks to establish His kingdom. And that restores human life That's the way of the kingdom It's not making a commitment to Jesus That's part of it And even the word commitment I, I want to push away and substitute the word surrender Because we've made too many commitments We need surrender Commitment is measured Surrender gives glory to Jesus as king We pledge allegiance We swear We have an oath That's what baptism is It's the marriage Right? So with that, however, um, th- that's part of the restoration. Wherever God rules, there's shalom, which is why Jesus says, when when you go do this, bring your peace. You go into that house. If someone welcomes you, say, peace be upon you. If they receive you, let your peace rest. If they don't receive you, take it back. In other words, you've got to get in the door. But once you start explaining what you're about, they're like, get out of here. We don't believe in that. Like our friends in Jerusalem, they, they were taking bricks and throwing them through... The windows there, and bring you know many many uh, hundreds of dollars. I believe uh, that much money worth of damage, as well as then beating on the girl that was working there. Um, so, uh, um, what, what was what was my point? The the, the whole idea of restoration. Uh, when when we go in and we start to talk about what we're about, they may say, "No, get out of here. Forget that. We don't want that." Like our friends in Jerusalem. Right? Or they may say, oh cool, yeah, come on in. Yeah, we'd love for you to stay here because hospitality made their, their society run. So there's someone's gonna welcome you in, but when they really welcome you once they realize what you're about, it's like, get to work. Let your shalom be there. In other words, heal them. Bring restoration. Yeah, my grandmother has been dealing with this for the last two decades. One one prayer, lay hands on in Jesus' name, I tell every evil thing to go, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, be healed. And she's like, for the first time ever, released. And it's like, okay, you've got our attention. And I want to tell you about Jesus, King Jesus right here. And they're like, oh yeah, please, stay here. Especially in the ancient world where there was nowhere else to stay. It's like, stay here. Now you have access to that whole village. Because not only do they receive you, they're key. You'll notice that there's... Those first people are usually also the influential people. It's just the way things work. So they'll give you access to the village. Jesus says, don't go visit. You visit the other houses, but don't go staying in the other houses. Just stay in your one house. Keep your headquarters. Because in the end, they're the people of influence after you leave. Come on now. Right? Remember the man of the Gadarenes? He was demonized with a legion. You read that story, especially in Mark, and you say, Oh, Jesus liberated that man. And he did. What a testimony. But it's not just a testimony. He was the key man in the region. Because the demons were begging Jesus, Don't cast us out of the region. They didn't just say, Cast us out of the man. In Mark 5, they said, Don't, don't throw us out of the region. We want to stay in this ten-city region. And somehow that demonic conglomeration of a legion, whatever it was, if it was literally 600 demons or not, it's like they, inf- they were like infecting this man and somehow keeping their, their, um, their influence over the region. You'll notice it says they went out to meet Jesus and they begged him to leave. And then later it says the people went out to meet Jesus and begged him to leave. Same terminology. They were acting just like the demons, even the people that weren't demonized. Right? But Jesus saw this isn't just a dude who, who's so demonized he doesn't wear clothes and he can break chains. This is the key man in this region. Which is why the demonic powers were probably so intent on using him. Because they saw influence. So when Jesus liberates this man, he's seated at his feet in his right mind and people are like, you got to go. So Jesus is going to leave and the man says, I want to go with you. He says, no, you, you stay here. And you tell everyone... Everywhere here, of all the things the Lord did for you. Here's your person of peace. Your access, your gateway into the entire region. Jesus found that man. It's an awesome picture, right? So it's like, heal that dude, and you have access to others. The original response of the people kicking Jesus out, you notice he didn't like pronounce judgment or respond to that, he just left. Because he planted his missionary there. So that's another thing here, we don't always stay in every place we're sent to go as long as we find those key people, then you have this chain reaction. It's extraordinary. And we've been duped by our own pride to think that our franchise and technology way could you know, let's the big thing and reach as many people as you can. Actually, this is the way you reach as many people as you can. Because the other thing is like trying to plant a tree from the leaves and the branches up in the sky and working down into the soil. Now, I'm no botanist. <laughs> But that's not the way it works. You start with the one deep down in and you heal that person. You demonstrate the kingdom and establish it in his or her home and it proliferates from there if the pattern continues. Just like natural family. Alright? In closing, Roman numeral three. And I'll just do this real quick. Evan, myself. I Here is just a very, very quick breakdown. In fact, I'm not going to write it down. I don't need to write it down. I don't need to erase that. A very quick breakdown of the different avenues of outreach from a healthy church community, whether it be the the family unit or the church of the city operating together. These five ministries that I have listed in A through E, the Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Pastor, and Teacher, they equip the saints for the work of ministry, but they also... They represent dynamics in the church that are avenues of outreach. All right, so if we're more apostolically oriented, even if, if we're not an apostle, we're going to have certain concerns in the way we reach people. We're really It's going to be about making disciples and planting churches. Even if we're not the ones to do it, or if we are the ones to do it, we want to support that. That, that's the point. Okay, so letter A is regarding the church's mission. Here's the different sorts of things and categories out of which we operate. Letter A is the apostolic. This is the emphasis on the Great Commission of uh, making disciples, planting churches. We want to see a Jesus movement. Someone with an apostolic concern will be like, everything you do in a city in the name of Jesus is awesome, but we want people transformed into the image of Jesus. That's the apostolic concern. That's the apostolic urgency, and anyone who really is oriented that way is going to really make sure they want to support that. But guess what? All avenues of ministry ultimately recognize that as the foundational issue. right? We don't just want to feed the poor. Although that might be a a huge emphasis on this or that church. We want to make sure there's still discipleship. Happening. Even if we can't disciple everyone we feed and clothe, that's still our urgency, but some of us may be much more oriented just to care for people. Okay. So the apostolic is not only a certain avenue, but it encompasses the rest. How about that? Everybody good with me? It encompasses the rest. No matter what. You're just saying that because you like that one the best. No, it's because it's foundational. I don't play favorites. Let her be the prophetic those who are oriented all right so those who are oriented in an apostolic mode are going to just want to help train disciples new ones existing ones okay that's going to be a burden reaching out especially the new ones they want to make disciples and plant churches or see it happen those in a prophetic orientation there's a, there's several ways to go here one of the uh, prophetic outreaches is confronting the evils and ills of society it's taking a stand against the slaughter of children in our city, in the in what should be the safest place for the most vulnerable of them all, the very opposite. Okay, those with a prophetic inclination are going to be like, Yeah, what you're saying is great, Bob, but look at all that's happening out here. So those in a prophetic vein are going to go and confront that. They're going to speak to society, especially in our city, and say, This is wrong, this is God's will, this is what we stand for. So they're standing for righteousness, But also in the prophetic tradition, they're reaching the poor and the widows. Any that are marginalized by society. The prophetic types are going to do that. Not so much from a pastoral point of view, though that will be there. They do care. But it's more this is wrong. They're mistreated. Someone's got to reach out to them. That's where God's kingdom goes. So we're going to them. They care, but not as much as the pastoral people. They're more prophetic. It's like, we're bringing God's justice here, and he's with those poor people. I don't care how famous the ministry is. What about these poor, marginalized people who need Jesus? The, the prophetic inclination is going to go there. The um, Another aspect of the prophetic inclination is to unveil God as God, especially through signs and wonders that will bring the fear of the Lord in the community. So the prophetic will often emphasize the supernatural to show God as God. And this is all for the lost. These are avenues to the lost. This isn't just in the church. I'm speaking now as avenues toward the lost. Let her see the evangelistic is obvious. There is a great emphasis on just preaching the gospel and sharing with unbelievers and seeing people saved. And what else matters to the evangelistic thrust of our outreach? We've got to share the gospel with the lost And they also will want to see signs and wonders uh, to demonstrate the kingdom and to bring a revelation of the kingdom. We can easily snap into a mode to show how all of these ministries minister to the church, which is the most immediate application in in Ephesians 4. But what we're doing today is showing how these are the different ways we reach out to our community. So it's like you read the Jesus way in Luke 10, but not everybody is meant to be sent there. We all fit into that mode, however, through these avenues, there might be some churches that are just like we just feel called to go confront this thing every Saturday and a couple of days per week of what's happening at Latrobe or wherever. Well, if that's what you're gifted to do and where your, your source of disciple making is, you have to go with the Lord. But as a city church, we should have all of our bases covered. So the, and the evangelistic is not going to be as concerned with those of the instructive and, you know, bringing instruction or whatever. They just want to preach the gospel. The pastoral vein is going to want to love and care for people. Lost people. Our hearts break because they're just sick and they don't have the medical needs, uh, the the medical provision for their needs. And so past, uh, uh, by the way, a pastoral inclination will want God bless you will want to see people healed. He restores my soul the shepherd lord. It's not just for the big power ministries, prophetic and evangelistic. The pastoral, God bless you. Good. Okay, God bless you. Be healed. <laughs> Sees that hurting person and is like that person needs a touch from Jesus. I need to go over there and say please can I pray for you? I just want to see you better. And they're still going to be concerned about the gospel, but their heart's going to be moved by reaching the lost with the power of God, right where they're at, uh, as well as caring for other needs. So it's just body-soul relationships, just caring for the lost as people. That They're going to reach out for those reasons and in those ways. They're also going to be like the prophetic vein. Still concerned with the prophetic aspects, but more pastoral compassion, doing good works. Uh, clothing and feeding the poor, visiting those who are shut in, those who can't do things for themselves, bringing the gospel to them, bringing healing, helping taking care of the children and having such a heart for the children of a community. Those are all really powerful pastoral expressions of outreach to the lost. And yes, even letter C, the instructive, the teacher element within the church, still represents a form of outreach because it wants people to understand the knowledge of God like the prophets do through demonstration. The teaching aspect will instruct the children at an outreach. And want to say, look, these people need to learn. You read in Ephesians 4 about all the ignorance among the Gentiles. They need to understand and have things explained. Not just preaching, not just healing, but Teaching the children. Gina's where's Gina's book here? You know, I mean this is part of what um Gina used this for was to reach some of the, the the daughters of prisoners with whom my mom works in prison ministry. Some of these kids at home just don't feel good about themselves, so here's a good inroad for the gospel to explain to them that they're still special to the Lord and the way the Lord sees them. That's instructive. They should understand that. God loves them. And those with an instructive inclination, they'll usually be teaching in the church, but they'll still want to explain things to the lost about God's goodness, Uh, knowledge of God versus ignorance, instruction as an outreach, and like I said, specifically teachers reaching children, very powerful ministry. So our assignments in closing, let's pray to the Lord of the harvest as individuals and churches. And see, and number one, see our each church, see your church as a part of a prayer movement to open doors of harvest in our region, in our city, and in our neighborhoods. If the Lord leads you to target something, target it. But don't read into it. Let's first set ourselves before the Lord and say, okay, we've heard this, let's pray. It's that simple. But let's play with pray with intention. And then prayerfully discern the steps of action in number two. Prayerfully discern the steps of action for church-based mission. Uh, The the locations, the forms, etc., etc. Prayerfully discern. Let's be careful not to make it up because we're trying to hear. Let's lay ourselves before the Lord and see what He says. And then, letter B, when He gives us steps, we take the steps. This will... Awaken a whole new dimension in our work as far as applying effort and sacrifice to be this intentional. And it may be more of a small cluster of people being more active than others, but uh, may the Lord's will be done. So let's close in prayer.